it's wintertime. And if I am to believe what I read on Facebook, most people have a hatred of the cold and snow. Now imagine being on a wooden ship with limited resources and sub-freezing temperatures for over a year. You survive that only to do it a second time. And this time finding yourself trapped in the ice for even longer, over two years. That is the tale of Elijah Kent Kane, and today I have his story on the 154th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee on Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee and Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I'm Jeff Kelly, your host and storyteller. I'm so glad you're with me today. I hope you are warm because today's story is of cold and ice. But before we start, I thought I'd begin today's episode with a little segment I did a few weeks back called What's Wrong With This Picture? It's a segment in which I talk about a film that, well, I just can't enjoy because there's something my suspension of disbelief just can't overcome. One such film was from 2012 called Looper, starring Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Now, in general, I'm not a huge fan of time travel films, but this one in particular, well, hmm, let me get this straight. The mob has access to time travel, and they figure the best use of it is to send their enemies back in time so they can be killed by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I remember seeing the trailer and thinking, Huh? What? The mob has access to time travel and this is what they use it for? Why not pull a Biff Tannen and make a fortune on sporting events or the stock market? You could make so much cash that you could rule the world. Maybe it's explained in the film why they didn't do that. I don't know. Truthfully, I've never watched it. Though I have some friends who said it was a good, intelligent film, but... I just don't think it was for me. So, this episode I'm back on schedule. Yay for me. And today I have a story about a man who was a huge American hero in the 19th century and is almost forgotten about today. It's an overview of his quick, short life. I hope you enjoy. Like always, I put as much into this episode as I can in 20 minutes. If you want to know more, there's some very good books out there that'll tell you all you need to know, and I'll have links to a few of those in today's show notes for this episode. This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. A spring morning in 1845. At the offices of the British Admiralty, Sir John Franklin, a seasoned naval captain, receives final orders before setting off on a daring voyage of exploration. Now, Sir John, this is the plan. His destination, the Northwest Passage, one of the last unexplored waterways in the world, and perhaps the most perilous. And then attempt to turn south or southwest 
into these uncharted waters. When he died in 1857, American explorer, surgeon, author, and medical officer Dr. Elijah Kent Kane was given a huge funeral procession, probably the biggest in American history until Abraham Lincoln's death eight years later. It took three weeks for his body to cross the country. At some stops, women by the hundreds or thousands would show up dressed in mourning. His body was transported up the Mississippi River by steamboat, stopping in cities along the way to allow locals to pay their respects. In Cincinnati, Ohio, his body was put on a train and taken to Independence Hall in Philadelphia, where for days people came to pay their respects. Congressmen, governors, and Supreme Court justices all marched in procession behind the body. Peter Capaletti, a Penn State Abington anthropology professor who has studied Kane's life for decades, stated that he lay in state like he was a president or something. It was a funeral procession that the country had never seen before. A book of around 200 pages was published with just all the eulogies that were spoken about him. Many historians have compared Kane's celebrity status to that of a rock star today. Not bad for a gentleman who was about five and a half feet tall, weighed 120 pounds, and was in delicate health, suffering from rheumatic fever. He was born the third day of February, 1820, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to John Kitsine Kane and Jane Deval Leeper. Elijah Kent Kane was the oldest of seven kids, having six brothers and one sister. One of his brothers, Thomas L. Kane, would become an attorney, diplomat, abolitionist, and fought in the American Civil War. Elijah entered the University of Virginia of Charlottesville in 1873 to pursue a career in civil engineering. His time at the university was cut short after about a year when he suffered an attack of rheumatic fever. Rheumatic fever is the inflammatory disease that can involve the heart, joints, skin, and brain that typically develops in two to four weeks after a streptococcal throat infection, commonly known as strep throat. In many cases, rheumatic fever, like in Ken's case, can cause permanent damage to heart valves. The illness forced him to leave school. It was so bad that his family feared for his life. Maybe it was knowing that he could die at any time. He was determined more than ever to make his mark on the world. He entered the University of Pennsylvania to study medicine in the fall of 1837. While serving his residency at Pennsylvania Hospital Blockley, he worked under Dr. McFeeters. Dr. McFeeters wrote about Kane. He said, Dr. Kane was a man of great purity of character. Although surrounded by temptations, I am not aware that he had any bad habits. Indeed, I regard his moral character as above reproach. He also wrote that Kane, at the time his health was delicate and his appearance even puerile. Kane graduated in March 1842. Soon after his graduation, his father encouraged him to apply for service in the United States Navy. He passed his examination even after he told the board of all his health issues. He became a physician attached to a diplomatic mission to China. The trip to China was his first sea voyage, and that was perhaps the first time he learned that he suffered from seasickness. Odd, perhaps, because this man would become famous for his sea voyages. Another member of the embassy to China, Fletcher Webster, who became his friend, said of Kane that, on their sea voyage together, that he was 
at once struck by the activity and energy of the doctor, who was never for a moment idle, or seemed enervated by the climate. He also noted that Cain was constantly in motion both intellectually and physically. He was very fond of the exact science and was an indefatigable student, evidently annoyed when not engaged in something, and always restless, unless busy for hours in the stateroom buried in mathematics, and the next seen in the mask head over the side. He served for six months before making his way home by way of Egypt and Europe, arriving at Philadelphia in the late summer of 1845. Over the next four years, he served on various peacetime postings off the west coast of Africa and the Mediterranean and along the eastern coast of the United States. One of the events that happened during this time really said a lot about the type of person Elijah Kent Kane was, a person interested in science, adventure, and exotic natural wonders. He was with his friend Baron Lowe in the Philippine Islands. Kane was interested in the tall volcano in the island of Luzon. No human had ever explored the depths of this mysterious active volcano, for it was almost certain death to try. Also, the local tribes considered it as the supposed home of their god, and any attempt to descend into it would be a sacrilegious crime. All this meant nothing to Cain. With several companions, he headed off to visit the volcano. Crawling on our hands and knees, Cain wrote, the lava within six inches of our nose, suddenly our heads jutted up from the crest of the volcano, and the magnificence of the crater, literally a cadur, burst upon us. The two used bamboo ropes tied around themselves and held by native guides. Baron Lowe threatened to shoot any man who would let go, and they headed down. Lowe, who was much heavier than Cain, quickly gave up, but Cain headed down. Lowe attempted to talk Kane into giving up as well. Kane finally touched bottom at around 200 feet. Taking off the ropes, surrounded by sulfurous vapors, he climbed down further until he got to the smoking lake below, quickly filling a few specimen bottles. He found that the journey back up was a lot harder than going down, the scalded ash giving way under his footsteps. As soon as he tied the ropes back around himself, he passed out due to the poisonous fumes. He was able to get pulled back up, more dead than alive, his boots charred into pieces on his feet. He eventually was restored to consciousness, barely surviving the adventure. His adventures took him through India, across the Himalayas, to Egypt and Greece. At one point, he went to West Africa due to his parents' ties to abolitionism, documenting much about the slave trade. There were several periods in his life when he would get extremely ill, almost to the point of death, but somehow he would always pull through and continue his adventures. He served briefly in the Mexican-American War, this only after traveling to Washington, D.C., and begging President Polk for more exciting tours of duty. But the adventures that really made Dr. Elijah Kent Kane an American hero was his time in the Antarctic that began in 1950. He was on a mission to find English explorer Sir John Franklin and his crew, who in two ships, the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror, left for the Antarctic in search of the Northwest Passage in 1845 and were never heard from again. Franklin's wife petitioned American President Zachary Taylor for an expedition to search for her husband, 
In March of 1850, Kane applied to be the surgeon on the expedition to find Franklin and his men. In May of 1850, two small expedition ships, the flagship Advance and the smaller Rescue, under the command of Lieutenant Edwin Jesse de Haven, sailed from New York with Dr. Elijah Ken Kane as its crew doctor. Soon the Advance was traveling through icy water. Kane wrote about traveling through the ice. The momentum of the assailing flow was so irresistible that as it impinged against the solid margin of the land ice, there was no recoil, no interruption to its progress. The elastic material corrugated before the enormous pressure, then cracked, then crumbled, and at last rose, the lesser over the greater, sliding up in great inclined planes, and these again breaking by their weight and their continued impulse, toppling over in long lines of fragmentary ice. The expedition was soon joined by a half-dozen English ships who were on the same humanitarian errand. Along the way, they discovered camps and graves of some of Franklin's crew, confirming they were on the right course. Then, due to strong gales and an unusually early advance of winter, the ships were frozen in the pack ice. They were forced to drift with the ice for months. The drift covered 1,050 miles and lasted eight and a half months. The sun was absent 12 weeks. The physical and mental suffering of the crew must have been something almost unimaginable. Every day the ice seemed to be ready to destroy the ship, while the crew was suffering with darkness, sickness, lack of shelter, and suitable nutrition. Death must have seemed like it was just around the corner for each one. One week in March, the temperatures reached 31 degrees below zero. Scurvy was, of course, a huge problem with the men, but Dr. Kane insisted on daily exercise, and he is credited for saving the crew from certain death. It was also his cheeriness and general attitude that contributed largely to the health, spirit, and morale of the crew in their darkest hours when despair seemed justified. In June of 1851, they finally broke free of the ice. For a while, the ships traveled north to continue the search, but DeHaven finally realized it was best to head back, and on September 30th, 1851, they made it home. Once home, Kane began writing and lecturing of his Arctic adventures and soon became a national hero. Elijah Kane would mount a second Arctic adventure in 1853, but between that time, he met, and maybe or maybe not, married Margaret Fox, one of the Fox sisters. For longtime listeners of Coffee with Jeff, you might remember the Fox sisters from episode 92. They were the sisters who were famous for spirit-wrapping seances. And even though Kane was convinced that the sisters were fraudulent, which in my opinion they were, he still was in love with Maggie and sought to reform her. Kane never claimed that they were married, but after his death, Maggie claimed that they were and changed her name to Margaret Fox Kane and that began a series of lawsuits over his will. Now, Elijah Kent was a believer in the open polar sea and a hypothesized ice-free ocean surrounding the North Pole, and he assumed that Franklin had made it there. He used that as his basis for proposing another trip to the Arctic. He persuaded New York merchant Harry Grinnell, the man who had financed the last trip, American financer George Peabody, the United States Navy Department, and several scientific societies to sponsor his second expedition. 
In December of 1952, Dr. Kane received an official order from the Secretary of the Navy to conduct another polar search. Again sailing in the advance, he and his crew left New York on the 30th of May, 1853. The crew consisted of 18 men, all volunteers, 10 of those for the United States Navy. Their first stop was Greenland, where they picked up some fur clothing and 50 sled dogs. Once back sailing, it wasn't long before a violent gale broke her from her moorings and nearly wrecked the ship. The icy conditions got so bad that seven of the eight officers were of the opinion that they should turn around to a more southern harbor. That would have ruined Kane's plans, and he quickly refused. It wasn't long before the ship was ice-locked once again. Kane said of the advance, We were fated never to leave together, a long resting place to her, for the same ice is still around her. Kane and his crew spent their time making voyages on foot, or with sled dogs, up to 50 miles away. They viewed and made scientific observations of the enormous glaciers in the area. The winter passed quietly, the officers making tidal, astronomical, magnetic, and meteorological observations. But before the winter was over, all but a couple of the sled dogs would be dead, not surviving the 32 degree below zero temperatures. The extreme cold forced Kane to ration his fuel to three buckets a day. I'm not sure what that means, but I assume it's not a lot of fuel. In March, now with only a few dogs, Kane sent out a sled with crewmen in place of dogs, First Officer Brooks being in charge. This ended in disaster. On March 31st, three of the men returned at midnight, looking swollen, haggard, and hardly able to speak, as Kane put it. He went on to say, They had left their companions in the ice, risking their own lives to bring us the news. Brooks, Baker, Wilson, and Pierre were all lying frozen and disabled. Where? They could not tell, somewhere among the hummocks to the northeast. It was drifting heavily around them. Irish Tom had stayed to care for the others. It was in vain to question them, for they were sinking with fatigue and hunger and hardly could be relied enough to tell us the direction. It was Cain himself who took to the rescue with ten men. One of the men were the most rational of those that had returned. When they left, temperatures were 78 degrees below freezing. Conditions were so bad that Kane later wrote that he had fainted twice in the snow. Hans, one of the indigenous people from the area who was traveling with them, spotted sled tracks in the snow and they followed. They soon came across four men laying on their backs. And even though the day was clear and sunny, it was also extremely cold. But somehow they managed to get the men back. The tendency to sleep, Kane said, could only be overcome by mechanical violence. And then at last we got to the brig, still dragging the wounded men instinctively behind us. There was not one whose mind was found to be unimpaired. Two of the men died. The other two recovered, but only after losing part of their feet. There were many other journeys like this, a lot more than I have time to tell in this story. Let's just say that things didn't always go well. Michael Robinson, author of The Coldest Crucible, Arctic Explorations in American Culture, a man who has studied Kane for years, said of Kane's leadership, Kane's party quickly grew frustrated with his command style. Kane was used to being a doctor, and he was not a very good commander. This came to a head on August 28th, 
when eight of his crew, about half, decided to leave on foot, much against Kane's wishes. They decided to go on their own, figuring the ship would never be free of the ice. They returned on December 12th, having nearly perished. Kane took no punishment against the men, but treated them more like a doctor treats a patient. As winter went on, they hunted in vain for game. Scurvy, with its varying phases, also snapped the energies of the crew, and at times the entire crew was on the sick list. In May of 1855, they were facing the possibility of spending a third winter locked in the ice. Kane thought at this time it was best, after two years of living in the horrible cold, to go out on foot and try to make it back. The surviving men traveled 1,300 miles on foot and by boat and were finally picked up by a Danish vessel. By the time they had reached America, one crew member died from malnutrition and two others from exposure. Even with the knowledge that men had died, others had deserted his command, and the Franklin was never found, he was hailed a hero. Author Michael Robinson had an explanation for this. Even though the United States was ten years away from civil war, things were already getting ugly. So when a man, especially a small sickly man, made it home when most presumed he was dead, whether he accomplished anything or not, it was like a small miracle, and he returned with marvelous tales of his adventures. Maybe it was just what the country needed at the time to take their minds off what was going on. His book, Arctic Explorations, became the biggest-selling book in the world. The only negative thing he had to deal with when he got back is the gossip about his relationship with Maggie Fox. But that's a different story for a different day. Before he left on a second voyage, he had made a promise to report personally to Lady Franklin. He traveled to England just to do that. But by then his health was in steep decline, and on the advice of his doctor, he sailed to Havana, Cuba in a vain attempt to recover his health. His poor heart finally gave out, and he died there on September 16, 1857, at the young age of 36. When the first winter passed with no word from the men, the Admiralty was not worried. But when the second winter passed, Lady Jane Franklin began to urge the Royal Navy to send a search party. Now, if an expedition were to leave this spring... Franklin's superiors dismissed her concerns believing that the men could survive for at least three years in the ice. But as the third winter approached, the Navy's confidence began to waver, and in 1848, the first of many search parties left England for the passage. The Royal Navy also offered the staggering sum of 20,000 pounds for the rescue of the crew. By now, the apparent failure of the expedition was the talk of London and it shocked Victorian England to the core. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old gold and listen to the sad sack. A little bit before I go. The Franklin expedition of 129 men who disappeared while looking for the Northwest Passage, the men who Elijah Kent Kane twice went looking for, were never found. Searching for the men continued for almost 20 years after the expedition was lost. On September 2, 2014, 
the HMS Erebus was discovered by a Canadian team, and on September 12, 2016, Franklin's other ship, the HMS Terror, was also found. Sir John Franklin himself, his body has never been recovered. Interestingly, the Northwest Passage, which was the proposed northern route to Asia, was something sought after in the 15th and 16th century, but by the time Franklin went looking for it in 1945, this according to author Michael Robinson, people had realized that it just wasn't a good idea. It was far too cold and dangerous to be a commercially viable route. So why did Franklin go looking for it? It seemed it was more of a prestige thing, a way to show off the power of the British Navy. You know, people will do almost anything for fame and glory. Not all of us. Because if somebody asked me in 1850 to leave my nice, toasty, warm home to go onto a wooden ship and visit the frozen Arctic, I'd tell them to get their head examined. But whatever. Now the ending credits. You want to help us at SciCon keep these wonderful shows available free on the internet? You can do that by visiting our Patreon page. Just go to SciCon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N.fm, and look for the Patreon link at the top. And thank you to everybody who already supports the network. Speaking of SciCon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? I mean, are you the kind of person that likes tasty craft beer and and listening to new music? If so, you should check out Pint Notes, the music and beer podcast hosted by Becca and Josh. You can find this show and many others over at SciCon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or just say hi, I'm there. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is coffeewithjeff, all one word. And I have a... And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Your story ideas are always welcome. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin to help financially, and I understand that, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review or a couple of stars. Those really help the show. I mean, they really do. And remember, links to all the sources that I used to write today's episode can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network. To my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years. David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo. Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme. And to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And of course, a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You have a special place in my heart. Thanks to everybody. I'll be back in two weeks with another exciting podcast. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee. Coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Coffee with Jeff. 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 Coffee with Jeff.
dawn of just new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, my coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with